Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, my name is John Torpey, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on timely international issues. Today's topic is how the pandemic is changing the nature of the European Union. And we're fortunate to have with us today Teresa Pulano, who is an assistant professor at the Institute for European Global Studies at the University of Basel in Switzerland. She got her PhD in political theory from the Institute for Political Studies, otherwise known as Sciences Po, in Paris, and has served as a visiting researcher at the Università degli Studi Roma Tre at Columbia University and at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. Her uh, research focuses on interpretations of the European Union as a process of statehood and territorial restructuring at the continental level. Thank you so much for joining us, Teresa Pulano. Thank you very much to John, <clears throat> and please forgive my sore throat today. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for doing this yeah, anyway. And thank you also to Meryl and to Christo. Yes, yes, thank you. Okay, so the essential nature of the European Union has been debated since its creation. Is it a United States of Europe? Is it just a customs union? A union? Is it, uh, you know, should it be characterized by what one uh, analyst called pooled sovereignty? Um, I mean, can you explain to us your understanding of the character of the European states under the treaties and laws of the European Union and how it may have changed over time? Yes. Thank you very much, John, for this question. <coughs> this is at the heart of my work. <coughs> I will start with a difficult answer and then try to explain it. For me, the European Union has to be understood as a process of qualitative transformation of statehood. And this starts from a evolution transformation of what statehood is for the member states. And then it has as its effect 
the reorganization of statehood at the continental level. Uh, so I don't see it as the European Union imposing a change of the member states, but rather as a substantial process starting and involving the states and resulting in the European Union. And this might sound a little bit counterintuitive because legally speaking, the European Union is an intergovernmental organization. It has a legal persona, but it is not a state. So I have to explain a little bit my take and explain why I feel it is important. Um, I think that uh, the, que the historical question here is central because what I feel is that since the start of the uh, coal and steel uh, community until the evolution with the, with the uh, European Union, what we see is a continuous gap between the material constitution of the European Union, uh, evolving uh, in, uh, for example, the extension of certain rights that were um, uh, allowed or that were a prerogative of member states' nationals, rights to reside, right to vote in local elections, uh, right to uh, conduct business in another member states. Uh, the uh, constant and gradual extension of these rights, this has created for me a material uh, form of continental statehood. And by my material, I mean uh, a form of statehood that has evolved through practices, practices of freedom of movement, uh, practices of um, uh, activities of citizens in other member states, practices of exchange, uh, practices of constitution of the internal market, etc. <clears throat> but practices has also, have also been followed by or fostered or better fostered by legal evolutions. So for me, what is really central, the material constitution of European statehood translates into a whole set of EU regulations and directives that give a very strong impulsion to this form of statehood. And therefore, the question of law and how do we have to understand the role of law is core. And for me, law has a performative um, power. Uh, it's institution uh, setting. Law, EU law, is the form through which the European Union as a political institution that I name as a form of statehood is created. Um, of course, if we look at the treaties, um, I think that we can see this aspect nested in the ambiguities and the contradictions of the treaties. I will make just one example. If you take the treaty <clears throat> on the European Union, at first, you have the names of all the member states and you have, for example, it starts with His Majesty, the King of the Belgians, Her Majesty, the Queen of Denmark, and so on and so forth, resolve, blah, 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 and um, especially uh, as, uh, resolve to take uh, a new stage in the process of creating an ever closer union amongst, among the peoples of Europe 
in which decisions are taken as openly as possible and as closely as possible to the citizen. For me here, it is central to see the ambiguity between the fact that the foundation of the sovereign power resides within member states, uh, at least formally speaking, and this makes it also possible for them to withdraw, like we have seen in the case of um, uh, the United Kingdom. But at the same time, what does it mean that these states decide to coordinate and to um, enhance a process of creating an ever closer union? How do these two things uh, come together? And um, on top of that, who is this citizen? Uh, the treaty speaks about. So the treaty says decisions are taken as openly as possible and as closely as possible to the citizen. Who is this the citizens? They don't say, they don't repeat uh, with respect to the nationals of Belgium, Denmark, blah, 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 and all the member states. And this has been a large part of my work, trying to understand who is this European citizen, always um, uh, struggling between EU citizenship as a fundamental right and as an autonomous status with respect to member states' uh, nationalities, uh, but at the same time, depending upon the possession of member state nationalities. So in my opinion, it is precisely through these contradictions and through the workings of the law that navigate with, for example, all the judgments of the Luxembourg court, that then this form of statehood and a form of um Territory at, territory at the continental level takes place. And I would just like to end this point by, by making an example. I think that the Brexit case illustrates this very well because, of course, um, since January 31st of January 2020, the United Kingdom is not anymore a member of the European Union. Still, we are seeing all the difficulties of negotiating uh, an agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union. No one knows in which conditions, how it will be done in a month. <clears throat> and everyone is afraid of not having a deal. And I think this shows precisely all the material, um, political, economic interconnections between former member states like the UK and the European Union. Um, it's very helpful. Um, but I, I guess I wonder uh, for American listeners whether you could briefly compare the European Union to the United States. I mean, yep. how how is it similar and how is it different? Is is your is the European Union, you know, a United States of Europe, or is it really something else? I think it's really something else because I th I think, and I ask you, John, I think that uh, a state of the United States could not withdraw like this, like the UK did. I cannot imagine. Well, especially in the current situation, <clears throat> I cannot imagine. Let's say Pennsylvania saying, oh, well, we are withdrawing from the United States. And anyway, the United States is recognized as a state. I think that what is interesting in the case of the European Union 
it's really to see that it's going towards a different form of statehood. I think for me, the United States, I don't know, I'm not an expert of, of the United States, but I would compare it more to classical federal states. Whereas I think that the European Union poses the question of forms of statehood and sovereignty that go beyond the classical uh, Weberian model of statehood. But I don't know what you think. Well, I think that's just right. I mean, obviously, the last time uh, that the states tried to secede from the United States, it created a civil war. Yeah. And I, th I think <laughs> it's notable that it's referred to as a civil war. I mean, yeah. Uh, rather than a war of uh, independence, which is what created the United States in the first place. Um, so, you know, as you say, I mean, nobody was really expecting it in Europe. Uh, it yeah. was kind of assumed that people would not go anywhere and that what happened in the British situation was, you know, possible in theory, but not something anybody really contemplated. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, which yep. is why it's been so troublesome. Uh, I mean, among other reasons why it's been troublesome, that's one of them. Um, but in any case, I mean, I, you know, I just think that for Americans, it's hard to figure out what this European Union thing is. I mean, I think Henry yeah. Kissinger once famously said, you know, if I want to call Europe, who do I call? And of course, the answer was, well, there was no, you know, nobody to call. And, you know, this continues as an issue in Europe with regard to the so-called common security and defense policy. I mean, of course, what yeah. kind of military might could Europe as a, you know, coherent entity actually put out on the field, so to speak. And I think there are a lot of doubts about that. Even, and of course, even, one of the things that Trump complained about was that the Europeans weren't carrying their weight, but he was not the first to, you know, to complain about that. I mean, yeah. I think the Euro the United States was always a little ambivalent. On the one hand, they wanted Europeans to be more militarily capable. On the other hand, they didn't want it necessarily strong enough to go its own way. Yeah. Now, in, under the Trump presidency, I think, you know, as we've heard from people like Angela Merkel, you know, the perception is that they can now no longer rely on the United States as a, as a partner. And so I, I, that has pushed them in the direction of you know, really going their own way in a kind of way that was unprecedented in the post-war period. Yeah, I agree with you on this point. I think yeah. that the Trump presidency and the military question, the security question, uh, and therefore the relationship with the U.S. has been definitely key to recent changes in EU orientation, as well as the Brexit. I think we can read these two phenomena together. Right. And of course, there's a big question now that we presume Joe Biden is going to take over the office of president from uh, Mr. Trump. And, uh, you know, is it possible to reconstruct these post-war alliances that, you know, sort of undergirded the whole Cold War period and the period since the collapse of the Soviet Union? Or is that world now sort of irremediably gone and we have to kind of come up with a new set of security and foreign policy arrangements? What will happen to the transatlantic alliance, et cetera, et cetera? So these are all big questions for the, for the future. Yeah. But I want to get back to something you mentioned in your answer uh, to my question it had to do with freedom of movement. I mean, obviously, the freedom of movement has been seen as, in many ways, the 
sine qua non, perhaps, of you know European citizenship. That is, that people who are member sta- members, uh, citizens of these member states, uh, have the right to move around and you know without real restriction. Of course, that has changed recently as a result of the pandemic. But um, yeah, I think the question is: to what extent has this ability to move around actually been taken advantage of by? to the citizens of the various member states uh, and to what extent has there developed this uh, a kind of you know European consciousness as opposed to the consciousness of being you know a citizen of X country of Germany of France of Italy yeah well I think that these are two levels I would say one is the level of the real impact of freedom of movement and the other one is how it is perceived um, I will just say one thing so According to the data, the people who actually move, who use the freedom of movement, it's only 3% of the whole population of the European Union. So there is, sociologically speaking, there is a much lower level of um, intrastate mobility than I think what we have in the United States. Nevertheless, I think that um, freedom of movement, it's really the cornerstone of the whole European architecture. Because without freedom of movement, there could not be. Because European citizenship means um, a sharing of uh, rights. The moment in which uh, a nation of a member state steps into the territory of another member state. So without freedom of movement, there would be no European citizenship and many of the other rights of the EU and many of the practices that brought EU to life, they would just not exist. So I think it's not only a central fundamental right for EU citizens, but it's really the mechanism through which uh, this form of EU statehood or through which Europe uh, is functioning. And I think that this is perceived by the citizens. Mm, I think that freedom of movement has been so far uh, really the most important achievement of Europe uh, to the eyes of the citizens. And as you might know, there there is this uh, program for university students called Erasmus. And this has had a very strong, and it it entails that students can um, take semesters in a university of another member state and then finish their degree at their home, home university. And this has been really very much widely used. Now, um, as I say, the 3% or also this example of the Erasmus, sometimes and populists have uh, used that. Freedom of movement is seen as um, something that pertains only to a certain elite among European citizens. So there is somehow a class divide in this sense. But for me, I just want to say briefly two things. One is that the centrality of freedom of movement in the legal and political architecture of the European Union is shown by the fact that the Brexit referendum, but also here in Switzerland, um, the initiative for the control of immigration and Switzerland is an associated member to the European Union. They have insisted precisely on blocking freedom of movement for EU citizens. This has been one of the central arguments for the United Kingdom. We cannot accept anymore that we don't have any control over who can come 
uh, into our territory, be it French or German or Italian or uh, Romanian citizens. So I think that the attack to some extent on Europe that Brexit has been for me has been precise in attack to freedom of movement and this shows how central this is. And I would like to add another point which is a more philosophical point to some extent. Um, I have analyzed in my own work freedom of movement uh, within Europe as a manifestation of a change in forms of political power. Uh, I draw upon the work of Michel Foucault here and in all the debates about the philosophy of the pandemics, uh, I am on the side of those who think that biopolitics and the, the categories um, thought by Michel Foucault are really central. I think that we need to look at the European Union as a form of government in which state power does not consist anymore in blocking or in controlling citizens, fixing them in within uh, the nation state's territory. Rather, for me, the model of European Union governance is exactly what Foucault has called pastoral power. So it consists in making uh, people move and managing the circulation of people as one would manage the circulation of, for example, diseases, as Foucault was discussing about uh, smallpox uh, uh, or, um, or famine. And in this sense, I think that the coronavirus, coronavirus situation really shows that. And I think it's quite telling that resorting to classical Weberian understandings of closing the borders, making the people not moving and controlling them in a fixed way has resulted in an economic catastrophe. And now in this second wave of coronavirus, European states are trying to do the opposite, that is to controlling and making a triage of circulations of people. I see. So, um, so you don't really see the uh, sort of reassertion of border controls in the context of the pandemic as, you know, the reassertion of national nation state power um, so much. I mean, how would you, is this undermining the kind of perception of the European Union as a, 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 an entity that brings together all the you know, citizens of the member states of the European Union? Yes, I, I think that um, the fact that borders have been closed in the first wave of the pandemic has been used by the nationalist forces. I think that the nationalist or the sovereignist forces <clears throat> they have manipulated um, these uh, panic reply or panic response uh, by European governments. And they have tried to say, okay, you see that what really matters is the nation state. You see that to save lives, what really matters is closing the borders. But I think that this has been more a manipulation that a reality for two reasons. The first one is that we have seen, and we Europe is doing this now, that the, the point is not really closing the borders to control the disease. Uh, the point is to control the disease while at the same time making it possible for people to move 
And this is a very different problem uh, in terms of uh, the question of what power, what government is. And the second point is that the nationalist response of closing the borders and of stopping everything, this has created another problem, which is a huge, immense economic problem. And this has triggered the response of the recovery fund. So this has triggered the response by the European Commission and by its president, Ursula von der Leyen, in saying we need a common European response to the pandemic. It is not possible that the response is a national response that tears apart the internal market, that tears apart the fundamental freedoms. So to some extent... Um, it's also uh, a struggle over what is freedom, what does freedom mean? Mm. Um, and I think that the European Union's elite understood that it was too dangerous, on the one hand economically, on the other hand politically, to let, to offer uh, such a possibility to the nationalist forces uh, to say, look, European Union is not able to deal with this question, we need to go back to border controls. And this is precisely why they came up with the recovery fund. Okay, well, that's what I wanted to ask you about next, um, is precisely this uh, phenomenon of the recovery fund. Um, after the usual kind of acrimony between the creditor and debtor nations and the frugal four, as we call them in the US and that sort of thing, um, the European Union did ultimately agree on an extraordinary package of economic measures to stabilize the economies of its member states in the face of the pandemic. Um, so would you kind of explain more about that and how novel that is and what you think the implications of it are? I mean, many people saw this as a decisive turning point for, because some of the, the, because the money is given to the debtor nations in the form of grants rather than loans, et cetera. So could you explain, uh, you know, what happened there and what it all means? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, <clears throat> I think that, um, Number one, the recovery fund had a very strong performative effect. I think that the fact, because money are still not issued. So, so far it was the decision taken and the announcement, but this was somehow enough. The acknowledgement uh, that um, there is an interconnection at the European level and that the response to the pandemic had to take into account the interconnect, political, economic, and social interconnection of member states, I think this had per se the effect of stabilizing and legitimizing the European Union against uh, Eurosceptic forces. And this is why I compare uh, the announcement by von der Leyen uh, uh, concerning the recovery fund to Mario Draghi, very famous sentence during the Eurozone crisis of, I will do whatever it takes to save the euro. For me, von der Leyen and the recovery fund are saying, we will do whatever it takes to save the European Union. So it's more for me now, until now, a performative assertion rather than something real and concrete. Nevertheless, um, there are uh, various elements. Uh, so far, 
The announcement of the recovery fund has made it possible, associated with the suspension of the uh, fiscal uh, fiscal pact uh, within the Maastricht Treaty, so the suspension of the rule that member states cannot exceed 3% of debt with respect to the GDP. This has made it possible for uh, some countries like Italy, for example, to already use this funding or use the promise of this funding uh, to lend money to the citizens during the pandemic, to um, make state interventions for big state companies that were uh, collapsing. For example, the Alitalia, the airplane flagship, flagship company of Italy, which is the only one carrier that is working right now for Italy during the, during the pandemic. Uh, Italy could put money into it right now because of the recovery fund and because of the suspension of the Maastricht criteria. So the recovery fund is already acting, even though the money are not there uh, yet. Uh, and what is really new uh, is that I think the recovery fund is a complete U-turn with respect to the austerity politics, because the logic so far in Europe the logic of the 3% rule of master treaty, but also the political logic that we have seen in place during the Greek crisis, for example, the logic was, as Angela, Angela Merkel has always said, everyone needs to do their homework, member states need to put their uh, debt under control, and then only once this is done, the EU will intervene. Here we have another kind of reasoning with the recovery fund. The reasoning I see is not only money will be given to member states according to the needs, um, and it will be not only be loans, but rather the European Union and the European Central Bank, they are using their power over the markets to grant um, the best possible conditions for this money to, to, to go to the member states. So this is the real difference. The difference is that money here is understood not as the expression of member states' uh, he economy health, but rather as uh, a consequence of the power of the European Union in the global markets. And then this will help uh, the different member states but the other key point for me in the in the logic of the recovery fund, but also of this other instrument, which is already active, which is called SURE, and which concerns unemployment uh, funds, uh, or the MES, which is also another instrument that member states could use again to um, uh, loan to get loans over in the, within the over the markets um, at a very um, convenient uh, um, tax because this money will be granted by the European Central Bank. What I see also as the key point is the recovery fund uh, has the political goal of making a work of rebuild of the infrastructure across Europe. So it's not only Europe uh, acting as a lender of, as a lend, lender of last resort for member states, but it's also the promise that there will be a European coordination for intervening with uh, the uh, logistic infrastructures, uh, with so train routes, uh, auto, auto routes uh, in, within Europe, but also the health infrastructure 
the recovery fund is also aimed at um, uh, re uh, re-putting back into shape the health system across member states, but also the digital infrastructure. So it's really more a form of uh, intervention, economic intervention and structural intervention, where we see a different, I think, the possibility of a different understanding of the relationship between the public and the private, the European and the national and the local. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, but in the interest of saving your voice for uh, your teaching obligations, uh, perhaps I'll ask one final question, and that is uh, sort of looking forward from these various developments that you've been describing. Um, you know, we've had this recent announcement, as I'm sure you know, about uh, the a vaccine from the company Pfizer and, and a German company, BioNTech. Uh, and indications that if their vaccine is as effective as they seem to have found uh, in their clinical trials, this bodes well for other uh, vaccine manufacturers who are using the same technique, the mes messenger RNA technique. So <clears throat> it may be possible to begin thinking slowly, cautiously about what life is going to be like after the pandemic. Um, so I wonder, you know, how you see Europe coming out of this, uh, this crisis, which, you know, is hardly over and is not going to be over for a while yet. Um, but, you know, what would you say about, you know, Europe post-pandemic? Yeah, I think that Europe, <clears throat> Europe has, has also, I think, the United States, they will come out of the pandemic with an economy that is completely destroyed. Uh, the losses of the economy uh, will be really, really very high. So there will be really the task of rebuilding the economy. And I think that, um, as I said, the recovery fund points to a direction uh, of getting rid of these austerity measures. Um, Emmanuel Macron, he already asked that the Maastricht Treaty, so the fiscal, the fiscal um, obligations of the Maastricht Treaty, they should not be reinstated for the whole uh, 2021. Uh, so I think that for me that the crucial point is that I want to see if the European elite understand that austerity measures need to be something of the past. And I think that with this economic, the economic situation that we will face after the pandemic, this will be a necessity. I think that Brexit, we will have to see what happens with the post-Brexit negotiations, but Brexit in this sense, I'm sorry to say it. And um, I think, of course, it's horrible that the United Kingdom is not anymore a member state, but I think that Brexit is also a good thing in this respect, because with Boris Johnson at the table, nothing like the recovery fund could have been agreed upon. So I think that there is this crisis, this different crisis um, are putting European elites uh, in a forced position of um, turning their back to austerity policies. Now the question will be which kind of economic order uh, will then be uh, uh, implemented uh, in Europe. And I think that one of the essential struggles will be on the welfare measures at the European level. Will unemployment be tackled? Unemployment will be a key problem 
of Europe after the recession? Uh, will it be tackled also at the level of the European Union? Because unfortunately, a very sad scenario could be that stronger states like Germany and to some extent France, they take advantage of the states that will get out of this pandemic uh, with their bones broken, like Italy, for example. This is a very sad scenario. I think that we are not there, but I want to see how these measures for um, rebuilding an infrastructure at the European level and how the measures for unemployment if they will really have a European dimension, a solidarity and cohesion dimension. And I think the struggle will be over the, the shapes of this instrument. And on one last point, I think that what is happening in the US will also be decisive for the state of Europe post-pandemic. Uh, the transition to the Biden administration will have a central impact of the Brexit negotiation. Um, Boris Johnson, what he, what will he do with the Biden administration? This leaves Britain really alone a little bit now. Uh, so I think that we have to see at the same time what, what happens in Europe, but also which kind of global order, at least for Western capitalism and for, and for the West, Biden has in mind and how this will impact over Europe and how also the current very uncertain situation in the US will impact over Europe. Fascinating. Thank you very much. I want to thank Teresa Pulano of the University of Basel for her insights about the situation in Europe and what it's become and where it may be going post-pandemic. I also want to thank Meryl Sovner of the EU Studies Center for helping produce this episode and Christo Voinoff for helping on the technological side. I also want to thank the Otto Walter Foundation for its support of our endeavors. Please subscribe to International Horizons on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and leave us a review. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying we look forward to having you with us next time on International Horizons. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.